6, both aspects of redemption are seen here by price. Sell the oil and pay thy debt, verse 7, and by power, the miraculous supply of oil. 7. Nor was it a general and promiscuous redemption, but a definite and particular one for a widow. Special object of God's notice. Deuteronomy 24.19, Psalm 68.5, James 1.27, and not her neighbors. Christ purchased the church of God, Acts 20.28, and not a mere abstraction of free willism. Chapter 9 Sixth Miracle First, we shall take notice of its connection. Our present narrative opens with the word and, which intimates that the incident described here is closely related to what was before us in our last, though we must not conclude that this by any means exhausts its force. Sometimes the Spirit of God has placed two things in juxtaposition, for the purpose of comparison, that we may observe the resemblances between them. At other times, it is with the object of pointing a contrast, that we may consider the points of dissimilarity. Here it is the latter. Note the following antitheses. In the former case, the woman's place of residence is not given. Verse 1. But here it is, verse 8. The one was a widow, verse 1. This woman's husband was alive, verse 9. The former was financially destitute. This one was a woman of means. The one sought out Elisha. The prophet approached the other. Elisha provided for the former. This one ministered unto him. The widow had two sons, whereas the married woman was childless. The one was put to a severe test, verses 3 and 4. The other was not. Second, a word on its location. The place where this miracle was wrought cannot be without significance, for there is nothing meaningless in holy writ, though in this instance we confess to having little or no light. The one who was the beneficiary of this miracle resided at Shunem, which appears to mean uneven. This place is mentioned only twice elsewhere in the Old Testament. First in Joshua 19.18, from which we learn that it was situated in the territory allotted to the tribe of Issachar. Second, in 1 Samuel 28.4, where we are told it was the place that the Philistines gathered themselves together and pitched in battle array against Israel, on which occasion Saul was so terrified that after inquiring in vain of the Lord, he sought unto the witch of Endor. Matthew Henry tells us that Shunem lay in the road between Samaria and Carmel, 
a road which Elisha was accustomed to travel, as we gather from chapter 2, verse 25. Unquote. It seems to have been a farming district, and in this pastoral setting a lovely domestic scene is laid. Third, its beneficiary. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. Second Kings 4, 8. The Hebrew word Godol is used in very varied connections. In Genesis 1, 16 and 21, and many other passages, it refers to material or physical greatness. In Exodus 32:21, great sin, it has a moral force. In 2 Kings 5, 1, Job 1, 3, Proverbs 25, 6, it is associated with social eminence. In Psalm 48, 1, and numerous other places, it is predicated of the Lord Himself. This woman was one of substance or wealth, as is intimated by the servants her husband had, and their building and furnishing a room for the prophet. God has his own even among the rich and noble. This woman was also great spiritually. She was great in hospitality and discernment perceiving that Elisha was a holy man of God, in meekness by owning her husband's headship, in thoughtfulness for others, the care she took in providing for the prophet's comfort, in contentedness, verse 13, in wisdom, realizing Elisha would desire retirement and quietness, and as we shall see, in faith confidently counting upon God to show himself strong on her behalf and work a further miracle. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman, and she constrained him to eat bread. Thomas Scott writes, Elisha seems to have resided at or near Mount Carmel, Chapter 2, verse 25 and 4.25 But went his circuit through the land to visit the seminaries of the prophets and to instruct the people, which probably was his stated employment when not sent on some special service. At Shunem there lived a woman of wealth and piety who invited him to come to her house and with some difficulty prevailed. End of quote. Several practical points are suggested by this. The minister of the gospel should not be forward in pressing himself upon people, but should wait until he is invited to partake of their hospitality. Least of all should he deliberately court the intimacy of the great, except it be with the object of doing them good. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Romans 12.16 is one of the rules God has given His people to walk by, and His servants 
should set them an example in the matter. The Lord's servants, like those to whom they minister, have their ups and downs not only in their inward experience, but also in external circumstances. Yes, they have their ups as well as their downs. They are not required to spend all their days in caves or sojourning by brooks. If there are those who oppose, God also raises up others to befriend them. Was it not thus with our blessed Lord when he tabernacled here? Though, for the most part, he had not where to lay his head, yet there were many women who ministered unto him of their substance. Luke 8, 2 and 3 And the home at Bethany welcomed him. So with the Apostle Paul, though made as the offscoring of all things to the Jewish nation, yet the saints loved and esteemed him highly for his work's sake. If he was cast into prison, yet he also makes mention of Gaius, mine host. Romans 16.23 It has ever been thus. The experience of Elijah was no exception as the present writer can testify. For in his extensive journeyings, the Lord opened the hearts and homes of many of his people unto him. Given to hospitality, Romans 12.13, is required of the saints and of God's servants too. 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8, and that without grudging, First Peter 4, 9. And this held good equally under the Old Testament era. It is to be noted that this woman took the initiative, for she did not wait until asked by Elisha or one of his friends. From the words, as often as he passed by, we gather that she was on the lookout for him. She sought occasion to do good and bought up her opportunities. Nor was her hospitality any formal thing but earnest and warm-hearted. Hence it may strike us as all the more strange that the prophet demurred and that she had to constrain him to enter her home. This intimates that the servant of God should not readily respond to every invitation received, especially from the wealthy. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Jeremiah 45, 5 is to regulate his conduct. Elisha responded to her importunity, and after becoming better acquainted with her, He never failed to partake of her kindness whenever he passed that way. And she said unto her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall, and let us set for him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick. And it shall be, when he cometh to us, that he shall turn in thither. Verses 9 and 10. Herein we have manifest 
several other features of her moral greatness. Apparently she was the owner of this property, for her husband is not termed a great man. Yet we find her conferring with him and seeking his permission. Thereby she took her proper place and left her sisters an admirable example. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And therefore the command is, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 Instead of taking matters into her own hands and acting independently, this great woman sought her husband's consent and cooperation. How much domestic strife would be avoided if there was more of this mutual conferring. This great woman was endowed with spiritual discernment, for she perceived that Elisha was a holy man of God. The two things are not to be separated. It is those who walk in subjection to the revealed will of God who are granted spiritual perception. He that is spiritual discerneth all things, 1 Corinthians 2.15, and the spiritual person is the one who is regulated by the precepts of Holy Writ, who is humble and meek and takes the place which the Lord has appointed. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light, Matthew 6.22. It is acting in self-will which beclouds the vision. I understand more than the ancients, said David. And why so? Because I keep thy precepts. Psalm 119, verse 100. It is when we forsake the path of obedience that our judgment is clouded and our perception dimmed. While admiring the virtues and graces of this woman, we must not overlook the tribute she paid unto Elisha. Observe how she refers to him, not as a charming or nice man. How incongruous such an appellation for a servant of God. No, it was not any such carnal or sentimental term she employed nor did she allude to him as a learned man, for scholarship and spirituality by no means always go together. Rather, as a holy man of God did she designate the prophet. What a description! What a searching word for every minister of the gospel to take to heart! It is Holy men of God who are used by the Spirit, Second Peter one twenty one, and how did she perceive the prophet's holiness? Perhaps by finding him at prayer or reading the scriptures. Certainly, from the heavenliness of his conversation and general demeanor. Ah, oh, my hero, the servant of God should need no distinctive manner of dress in order for people to identify him. His walk, his speech, his deportment ought to be sufficient. 
Returning to the great woman, let us next take note of her constancy. The inviting of Elisha into her home was actuated by no fleeting mood of kindness which came suddenly upon her and as suddenly disappeared, but rather was a steady and permanent thing. Some are mere creatures of impulse, but the conduct of those is stable who act on principle. How often a church is elated when a minister is installed and its members cannot do too much to express their appreciation for him. But how soon such enthusiasm often cools off. The best are spasmodic, if not fickle, and need to bear in mind the injunction, Let us not be weary in well-doing. Galatians 6, verse 9 It is blessed to see this woman did not tire of ministering to God's servant, but continued to provide for his need and comfort, and at considerable trouble and expense. Fourth, we turn now to the occasion of this miracle. And it fell on a day that he came thither, and he turned into the chamber and lay there. And he said to Gehazi his servant, Call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. Second Kings 4, 11 and 12 Elisha did not complacently accept the loving hospitality which had been shown him as a matter of course, as though it were something which was due him by virtue of his office. No, he was truly grateful and anxious to show his appreciation. In this, he differed from some ministers we have met who appeared to think they were fully entitled to such kindness and deference. While resting from his journey, instead of congratulating himself on his good fortune, he thought upon his benefactress and wondered how best he could make some return. But how? She was in no financial need. Apparently she lacked none of the good things of this life, what then should be done for her? He was at a loss to know, but instead of dismissing the thought, he decided to interrogate her directly. Fifth, its peculiarity. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care, what is to be done for thee? Wouldst thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the hosts? And she answered, I dwell among mine own people. Verse 13 This miracle differed from most of those we have previously considered in that it was unsought, proposed by the prophet himself. He suggested that royal honors might be bestowed on herself or husband, if she so desired. Thomas Scott says, Elisha had no doubt acquired considerable influence with Jehoram and his captains by the signal deliverance and victory obtained for him. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 27. 
And though he would ask nothing for himself, he was willing to show his gratitude on behalf of his kind hostess by interposing on her behalf if she had any petition to present. Unquote. Yet we feel that the Prophet knew her too well to imagine her head was set upon such trifles as earthly dignities, and that he gave her this opportunity to declare herself more plainly. And she answered, I dwell among mine own people, verse 13. It looks as though the prophet's offer to speak unto the king for her intimated that positions of honor could be procured for her and her husband in the royal household. Her reply seems to show this, for it signified, I am quite satisfied with the portion God has given me. I desire no change or improvement in it. How very rare is such contentment. She was indeed a great woman, at last that today there are so few like her. As Matthew Henry points out, it would be well with many if they did but know when they are well off. Unquote. But they do not. A roving spirit takes possession of them and they suppose they can improve their lot by moving from one place to another only to find, as the old adage says, a rolling stone gathers no moss. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Isaiah 57:20. But it should be far otherwise with the people of God. It is much to be thankful for when we can contentedly say, I dwell among my known people. Sixth, its nature. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Verily she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thine handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her. Second Kings 4, 14-17 Observe the prophet's humility. In his perplexity he did not disdain to confer with his servant. He was now pleased to use his interests in the court of heaven, which was far better than seeking a favor from Jehoram. It should be remembered that in Old Testament times, the giving of a son to those who had long been tireless was a special mark of God's favor and power. As the cases of Abraham, Isaac, Manoah, and Elkanah go to show. We are not sure whether her language was that of unbelief or of overwhelming astonishment. But having received a prophet in the name of a prophet, she received 
a prophet's reward. Matthew 10.41 Seventh, its meaning. This may be gathered from the miracle preceding. There we had before us a typical picture of redemption, a setting free from the exactions of the law, a deliverance from bondage. What then is the sequel of this? Surely that which we find in the lives of the redeemed, namely, their bringing forth fruit unto God. This order of cause and effect is taught us in being made free from sin. Ye have your fruit unto holiness. Romans 6.22 and compare 1 Corinthians 6.20 But it is not the products of the old nature transformed, for the flesh remains the same unto the end, bringing forth after its own evil kind. No, it is altogether supernatural, the fruit of the Spirit, the manifestation of the graces of the new nature communicated by God at the new birth. Accordingly, we have here the fruit of the womb, yet not by the ordinary workings of nature, but as in the case of John the Baptist, Luke 1, 7 and 57, that which transcends nature, which issues only from the wonder-working power of God. It is to be carefully noted in this connection that the beneficiary of our miracle is designated a great woman. As we have pointed out previously, this appellation denotes more immediately that she was one upon whom divine providence had smiled, furnishing her liberally with the things of this life. But she was also morally and spiritually great. In both respects, she was an appropriate figure of that aspect of salvation which is here before us. Redemption finds its object like the widow of the foregoing miracle, in distress, poor, sued by the law, unable to meet its demands. But redemption does not leave its beneficiaries thus. No, God deals with them according to the riches of His grace, and they can now say, He hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. Revelation 1, 6 The righteousness of Christ is imputed to them, and they are great indeed in the eyes of God, the excellent, in whom is all my delight. Psalm 16.3 is how he speaks of them. Such are the ones in whom and by whom the fruits of redemption are brought forth. Everything recorded of this woman indicates that she was one of the Lord's redeemed. She honored and ministered unto one of his servants in a day when they were far from being popular. Moreover, Elisha accepted her hospitality, which he surely had not done unless he discerned in her the marks of grace. The very fact that at first she had to constrain him to partake of her kindness 
the margin renders it laid hold of him, indicates he would not readily receive favors from anybody and everybody. But having satisfied himself of her spirituality, as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. Let it be remarked that that expression, to eat bread, means far more to an Oriental than to us. It signifies an act of communion, denoting there is a bond of fellowship between those who eat a meal together. Thus, by such intimacy of communion with the Prophet, this woman gave further evidence of being one of God's redeemed. As the procuring of our redemption required miracles, the divine incarnation, the death of the God-man, his resurrection, so the application of it unto its beneficiaries cannot be without supernatural operations both before and after. Redemption is received by faith, but before saving faith can be exercised, the soul must be quickened, for one who is dead unto God cannot move toward him. The same is true of our conversion, which is a right about faith, the soul turning from the world unto God, which is morally impossible until a miracle of grace has been wrought upon us. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. Jeremiah 31.18 Such a miracle as regeneration and conversion, whereby the soul enters into the redemption purchased by Christ, is necessarily followed by one which shows forth the miraculous fruits of redemption. Such is the case here, as we see in the child bestowed upon the great woman. Remarkably enough, that gift came to her unsought and unexpected. And is it not thus in the experience of the Christian? When he came to Christ as a sin-burdened soul, redemption was all that he thought about. There was no asking for or anticipation of subsequent fruit. Chapter 10 Seventh Miracle And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, According to the time of life. 2 Kings 4.17 As Matthew Henry pointed out, we may well suppose after the birth of this son that the prophet was doubly welcome to the good Shunammite. He had thought himself indebted to her, but from henceforth, as long as she lives, she will think herself in his debt and that she can never do too much for him. We may also suppose that the child was very dear to the prophet as the son of his prayers and very dear to the parents as the son of their old age. Unquote. What is more attractive than a properly trained and well-behaved child? And what is more objectionable than a spoilt and naughty one? From all that is revealed of this great woman, 
We cannot doubt that she brought up her boy wisely and well, that he added to the delightfulness of her home, that he was a pleasure and not a trial to visitors. Alas, that there are so few of her type now left. Godly and well-conducted homes are the choicest asset which any nation possesses. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. Second Kings 4.18 The opening clause does not signify that he was now a fully developed youth, but that he had passed out of infancy into childhood. This is quite obvious from a number of things in the sequel. When he was taken ill, a lad carried him back home, verse 19. For some time he sat on her knees, verse 20. And later she, apparently unaided, carried him upstairs and laid him on the prophet's bed, verse 21. Yet the child had grown sufficiently so as to be able to run about and be allowed to visit his father in the harvest field. While there he was suddenly stricken with an ailment, for he said unto his father, My head, my head, verse 19. It is hardly likely that this was caused by a sunstroke, for it occurred in the morning, a while before noon. Seemingly the father did not suspect anything serious, for instead of carrying him home in his own arms, he sent him back by one of his younger workers. How incapable we are of foreseeing what even the next hour may bring forth. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon. Verse 20 What a lovely picture of maternal devotion! How thankful should each one be who cherishes the tender memories of a mother's love. For there are tens of thousands in this country who were born of parents devoid of natural affection, who cared more for the public house and the movies than for their offspring. But powerful as true mother love is, it is impotent when the grim reaper draws near for our verse adds, and then died. Death strikes down the young as well as the old, as the tombstones in our cemeteries bear ample witness. Sometimes he gives more or less protracted notice of his gruesome approach. At others, as here, he smites with scarcely any warning how this fact ought to influence each of us, to put it on its lowest ground, how foolish to make an idol of one who may be snatched away at any moment. With what a light hand should we grasp all earthly objects? Here, then, is first the occasion of this miracle, the death of the child. Second, a word upon its mystery. How often the Lord's dealings seem to us as passing strange, hopes suddenly blighted, prospects swiftly changed, loved ones snatched away, 
all flesh is grass, Isaiah 46, and that today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, Matthew 6.30. Thus it was here. The babe had survived the dangers incident to infancy, only to be cut down in childhood. That morning, apparently, full of life and health, trotting merrily off to the harvest field, at noon a corpse on his mother's knee. But in her case such a visitation was additionally inexplicable. The boy had been given to her by the divine bounty because of the kindness she had shown to one of God's servants. And now, to carnal reason, it looked as though he was dealing most unkindly with her. A miracle had been wrought in bestowing the child, and now that miracle is neutralized. Yes, God's ways are frequently a great deep unto human intelligence. Yet, let the Christian never forget that ways are ever ordered by infinite love and wisdom. It is indeed most blessed to observe how this stricken mother conducted herself under her unexpected and severe trial. Here, as throughout the whole of this chapter, her moral and spiritual greatness shines forth. There was no wringing her hands in despair, no giving way to inordinate grief, nor was there any murmuring at providence, any complaint that God had ceased to be gracious unto her. It is in such crises, and by their demeanor under them, that the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. We do not say that the former always conduct themselves as the great woman, yet they sorrow not as do others who have no hope. They may be staggered and stunned by a crushing affliction, but they do not give way to an evil heart of unbelief and become avowed infidels. There may be stirrings of rebellion within, and Satan will seek to foster hard thoughts against God, but he cannot induce them to curse him and commit suicide. Divine grace is a glorious reality, and in his measure every Christian is given to prove the sufficiency of it in times of stress and trial. Third, its expectation. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door upon him, and went out. Verse 21 This must be pondered in the light of her subsequent actions, if we are to perceive the meaning of her conduct here. There was definite purpose on her part, and in view of what immediately follows, it seems clear that these were the actions of faith. She cherished the hope that the prophet would restore her son unto her. She made no preparations for the burial of the child, but anticipated his resurrection by laying him upon Elisha's bed. Her faith clung to the original blessing. God, by the prophet's promise and prayers, had given him unto her, 
And now she takes a dead child to God, as it were, and goes to seek the prophet. Her faith might be tried even to the straining point, but in that extremity she interpreted the inexplicable dealings of God by those dealings she was sure of. Reasoning from the past to the future, from the known to the unknown. The child had been given unto her unasked, and she refused to believe it had now been irrecoverably taken away from her. Her faith was indeed put to a severe test, for not only was her child dead, but at the very time she seemed to need him the most, Elisha was many miles away. Ah, that was no accident, but wisely and graciously ordered by God. How so? That there might be fuller opportunity for bringing forth the evidences and fruits of faith, a faith which does not triumph over discouragements and difficulties is not worth much. The Lord often causes our circumstances to be most unfavorable in order that faith may have the freer play and rise above them. Such was the case here. Elisha might be absent, but she could go to him. Most probably she had heard of the raising of the widow's son at Zarephath, 1 Kings 17.23, by Elijah. And she knew that the spirit of Elijah now rested on Elisha, 2 Kings 2.15. And therefore, with steadfast confidence, she determined to seek him. That she did act in faith is clear from Hebrews 11.35. For that chapter which chronicles the achievements of faith of the Old Testament saints says, Through faith. Women received their dead raised to life again. There were but two who did so, and the great woman of Shunem was one of them. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. Verse 22. While faith triumphs over difficulties, it does not act unbecomingly by forcing a way through them and setting aside the requirements of propriety. Urgent as the situation was, yet she did not rush away without informing her husband of her intention. The wife should have no secrets from her partner, but take him fully into her confidence. Failure at this point leads to suspicions, and where they exist, love is soon chilled. Nor did the stricken mother content herself with scribbling a hurried note telling her husband to expect her return within a day or so. No, once again she took her proper place and owned her subjection to him. Though she made known to him her desire, she demanded nothing but respectfully sought his permission, as her I pray thee plainly shows. Faith is bold and venturesome, but it does not act unseemly and insubordinately.
Thomas Scott wrote, It is happy and comely when harmony prevails in domestic life, when the husband's authority is tempered with affection and unsuspecting confidence, when the wife answers that confidence with deference and submission as well as fidelity, and when each party consults the other's inclinations and both unite in attending on the ordinances of God and supporting His cause. End of quote. But such happiness and harmony is attainable and obtainable only as both husband and wife seek grace from God to walk in obedience to His precepts and as family worship is duly maintained. If the wife suffers herself to be influenced by the very unfeminine spirit which is now so rife in the world and refuses to own the lordship of her husband, 1 Peter 3, 6, or if the husband acts as a tyrant and bully, failing to love, nourish, and cherish his wife, Ephesians 5:25 and 29, and giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important, 
when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.